Hi, you're about to get smarter in just a few minutes with Curiosity Daily from Curiosity.com. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Today, you'll learn about how being in outer space changed our guest's perspective about the world in an inspiring story from NASA astronaut Nicole Stott. You'll also learn how dozens of cultures have developed whistled versions of their languages. Let's satisfy some curiosity. With the daily conflicts of politics, office disputes, and online trolls, it's easy to get bogged down in how different we all are. That's why today's guest will be a breath of fresh air. She's seen Earth from space, and she's here to remind us that we're all just humans living on the same tiny planet. Nicole Stott is a former NASA astronaut who's been on two missions to space, including a long-duration mission on the International Space Station. That experience changed the way she sees the world, and it inspired her to write a book about what she's learned about life on our home planet. That book is called Back to Earth, What Life in Space Taught Me About Our Home Planet and Our Mission to Protect It. In our conversation, we asked her how being in space changed her perspective. Yeah, and I think it happens. I, I, I can't say all. I don't want to speak for everyone, but you know, everyone I know that's had the experience has felt some kind of emotional, personal, you know, life-changing kind of result from it, uh, you know, all good stuff. You know, certainly a spacewalk is kind of one of those outliers in the kind of thing you can do when you're in space. But the whole experience, you know, the way our bodies adapt to this new extreme environment, you know, the way we were moving in three dimensions versus, you know, walking in a straight line or climbing stairs or something, it's, it's incredible. And then you add that view out the window that I always thought about it, like I'm as far as I'll probably, you know, or at least at this point get from this, this planet that's our home, this reality that, you know, we all know we live on a planet and yet there it is right <laughs> in front of your face that way. And that's pretty impressive. And so a lot of other things, thoughts, feelings fall out of that reality check, I guess, too. So yeah, I carry that with me every day now, and I'm very thankful to have had the opportunity to write a book to share a little bit about the impact of that as well. Yeah. So how what thoughts and feelings did that evoke now that you're back on Earth? Like, how does that change your day to day? Well, I'll go back to the the we live on a planet thing. I think, you know, and all these really complex things that we do, right? You know, the technology we need to get ourselves off the planet, you know, to live and work in space, even for a short period of time to get home safely. That's really complex to make that happen. And then you are there and you're doing all this work that's really complex too, the science and all of that, um, just to live and work there. The, the international relationships that are going on, that's a pretty complex thing. You know, the way people work together and the way we can peacefully, successfully do that kind of thing as an international community. And then to like take all that, add that view out the window and the reality of that. I mean, I came home thinking of it in really simple ways, in ways that we all know before. You don't have to fly in space to know these things, right? You know, to me, it's like, okay, we live on a planet. We're all earthlings, only border that matters, that thin blue line of atmosphere that blankets and protects us all. And this need to just communicate that 
just how much better it would be if we all lived like crewmates here on Spaceship Earth versus riding this planet like passengers. And that's that's what I take with me every day now. I try to incorporate those three little lessons and the crewmate thing into every thing I'm doing. It's why I'm really excited about talking to you guys because this whole idea, I think, of curiosity is, you know, it's really core at what makes us human, right? And we can use that curiosity in very positive ways. We can go into situations where we believe there's a solution to every challenging problem and our curiosity can lead us to those solutions. We can look at things in a very much a here's how we can, not why we can't way of, of solving problems too. And I think that's where you know, curiosity is one of those things that leads us to that kind of approach to things. You know, one of the chapters, ways of being is to stay grounded. And it, and that's something we do in space. It seems kind of counterintuitive. What do you mean stay grounded while you're you know on a spaceship? But it's, there's a very kind of transcendent meditative feel of, of being in that place, looking at, you know, earth from a very different vantage point. I mean, I remember floating in front of the window during the day looking at Earth, and I had to set my timer on my watch to remind me to go back to work because it just would suck you into the view. You wanted to see what's the next surprise coming along. And that was, it was this refreshing thing that went on. And when I came back to Earth, I wanted something that gave me that same kind of sense. And I never meditated before I went to space. I do now. I when I go outside, you know, I discover this thing called earthing. You know, apparently loads of people knew about this. I had no clue. Just to go out and stand barefoot, like in the dirt or grass, and you know, stand there for a couple seconds and just think about, oh my gosh, my feet are on a planet <laughs> that's spinning at a thousand miles an hour and rotating around the sun at like, you know, orbiting at like. 60,000 miles an hour or something in space and then, you know, breathe deep and look up and think about this blue sky or night sky that seems to go on forever. And yet I know it's just this thin veil, you know, protecting us and, and create a connection and all of that. And that is, I try to do that every day. And I try to encourage people to do that every day. And I don't know about you guys, but in this whole COVID thing, which I wouldn't wish on anybody, you know, and I'm really hopeful that we'll be out of this soon. But one of the things I've tried to do and share with other people, because I've gotten asked a lot, oh, you know, this being in isolation in our homes must be a lot like, you know, what we're all experiencing now, you know, what you experienced in space. And my, I look out my window from my home now and try to feel the same thing I did looking out my window of the space station and look for the next surprise that's out there, appreciate something I might have seen every day, but in a whole new kind of awe and wonder way that I might not have looked at it before. Inspiring stuff, right? Again, that was Nicole Stott, former NASA astronaut and author of the new book, Back to Earth. What Life in Space Taught Me About Our Home Planet and Our Mission to Protect It. Nicole will be back tomorrow to talk about how art has helped her communicate her experience in space. How do you communicate with someone who's out of earshot? For people in the modern Western world, the answer might be walkie-talkies or cell phones or empty soup cans connected by a string. 
But what about back before those inventions were possible? Get this. More than 80 cultures scattered across the world settled on the same remarkable solution, a whistled version of their local language. Why whistles? Well, because a whistle carries a lot farther than normal speech. If you talk at a loud volume at the goal end of a soccer field, you can reach someone who's almost to the midfield line. If you shout at the top of your lungs, you can reach someone at a distance of about two soccer fields placed end to end. But whistle, and your target could hear it from upwards of five soccer fields away. A very skilled whistler can send a message ten times farther than they can yell the same thing. It's kind of a sonic superpower. That's probably why cultures have developed whistled languages again and again, from Siberia to the Amazon rainforest to West Africa to the Himalayas to New Guinea. A lot of the time, what these cultures have in common comes down to the land. For instance, there are shepherds who live on La Gomera off the coast of West Africa, and they spend a lot of time tending to their flocks on very rugged terrain that's painstaking and dangerous to cross. The valleys are too far to shout across, but they aren't too far for whistling. The conversation in their whistled language can save shepherds hours of travel. Linguist Julian Meyer recently published a review of whistled languages, and he found that they have the same features of normal languages, minus the vocal cords. For languages like English that don't rely on pitch for meaning, a skilled whistler can pretty easily imitate the most important aspects of the spoken version. That makes it simple enough to differentiate between a whistled long E and a long O, or between a T and a K. You don't even have to have heard it before. Like, take a listen to these recordings of whistled English, which we're using courtesy of Julian Meyer. Nice to meet you. How do you do? Happy birthday to you. Do you understand the whistle? Of course, again, that's a language where pitch doesn't carry a lot of meaning. In tonal languages, like Mandarin, whistlers have to make trade-offs. But it's definitely doable. For instance, a language from southern Mexico called Chinantec has seven different tones, but the whistled version can still carry a ton of meaning. Unfortunately, whistled languages have been in serious decline all over the world for decades. And it's not just because of technological alternatives. Deforestation and other forms of resource extraction are harming whistling communities and changing their ways of life. But there is some good news. UNESCO has recognized two whistled languages as part of the world's intangible cultural heritage, which comes with some resources for conservation. At least that is something to whistle about. All right, well, let's do a quick recap of what we learned today, starting with the fact that life on Earth would be a lot better if we all acted like crewmates instead of passengers. That's according to NASA astronaut Nicole Stott, who said that going to space changed her life for the better. She also said that curiosity is core to what makes us human, and it's important for humans to approach problems with a sense of curiosity so we can find solutions that work for everyone. 
Nicole also told us about a thing called earthing, where you basically just stand outside, feel the ground beneath your feet, and think about how we're all hurtling through space at millions of miles an hour. You may not be able to go to outer space, but you can take a moment to stand on the ground and think about the nature around you. And that can go a long way. Why do you think meditation is so popular, right? Yeah. This really made me want to do that. Just go out and stand and think about how I'm moving really, really, really fast. I used to do that when I was a kid. I haven't done that for a long time. It's about time. No time like the present. And we also learned that more than 80 cultures worldwide have a whistled version of their language. They use it for long distance communication since whistles can travel up to 10 times farther than a shout. These languages are in decline, but UNESCO has recognized two as part of the world's intangible cultural heritage. And that comes with some resources to help conserve it. And something that I really thought was kind of interesting, a little behind the scenes tidbit about the whistled language sample is that I actually had to normalize the volume between the spoken word and the whistle because the whistle was so much louder than the spoken words. And like, that's exactly what we're what we're saying here is that like whistles can project way, way, way further than spoken language. And here in this recording, I saw just that. Well, thank you for not blowing out anybody's ears. <laughs> yes. Sometimes when it comes to volume levels, you'll just have to take our word for it. The writer for today's whistling story was Grant Curran. Our managing editor is Ashley Hammer, who is also an audio editor on today's episode. Our producer and lead audio editor is Cody Goff. Join us again tomorrow. All you need to do is use just a little... (laughs) ...to learn something new in just a few minutes. (laughs) And until then, stay curious.